Well, today we're going to continue our series in the book of Luke, and we're going to take a little bit of a break in January as we look at the five questions. Perhaps you saw our promo on that uh, last week. But we're going to uh, be going through Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles with you, just grab your Bible out, or we have Bibles at the back of the room. And I think in the Bibles in the back of the room, by the way, if you don't have one, feel free to take one. I think it's on page 841 is Luke chapter 9. But if you just put your finger there in there in uh, Luke chapter 9, we're going to be going through the first 27 verses, but actually we're going to do a flyover on the first uh, 17 verses, and I'm going to start focusing on... Uh, verse 18. So if you have your Bible there, I don't know about yours, but this is how mine is set up. So usually there's kind of a, a paragraph or I call it a chunk of scripture section. And in mine, it says above chapter nine, it says, Jesus sends out the 12. Do some of you have that on yours? Jesus sends out the 12. Okay. So that's just good description of what it's about. Now, of course, uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh, the Bible was not written here. We've got some Bibles coming down the aisle if you need some. Uh, the Bible was not written with those section headings in there, nor was it written with verse numbers, and we've add those, added those lately. But, but those are, are good and helpful guides to identifying what's in that section. And what we're going to do today, I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, verses 1 through uh, 9. And it says, Jesus sends out, his, out the 12. And I'd like to invite you to go back when you have some more time because it is God's word. We won't be hitting much on it today, but it's worth reading because it is God's word. And there we have the description of Jesus going out ministering to the, uh, sending out his 12 disciples to do ministry. And can you imagine that? They're walking, they're talking with Jesus, they're eating with Jesus. And he says, by the way, guys, now it's time for you to do what you've seen. And what, what would that have been like? And so he gives them very specific instructions. Take nothing with you. Um, go stay with people in the village. And they, it says they went village to village. And if a village did not welcome you, did not welcome the good news of the kingdom of God, then you take your sandals, clap them together, and move on to the next village. And so they went out there. And we don't know too much as to what they did. Now, he gave them authority to preach and to heal. And so we assume that's what they did. But we don't know how long it was. We don't know if it was a few days or a few weeks. Um, but evidently, they went out long enough where they went village to village. And then in verse 10, it says, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them away. Uh, so here we have, in the military, we used to call this an AAR, after-action report. Okay, So they, we've got an after-action review. And um, it's in one verse. One verse in the entire chapter on his, their after-action review. But we don't hear what they, what they experienced. And so it wouldn't have been great to get a report, a first-hand report on what they did, what they heard, what they saw, the miracles that God performed <laughs> through them. But we only have that one verse. So I want to invite you to take a look at that. And then uh, the next section heading uh, above verse 10 there, I have in my Bible, Jesus feeds the 5,000. So as far as I know, this is the one account found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, of the feeding of the 5,000 and other Gospels, say 4,000. And so I'm not quite sure how many uh, thousands are there, except that when you take some low, couple of loaves and you know, fish it and you multiply it and feed thousands, that's a miracle in anybody's book, I think. So there we have that, that account there where Jesus did that. One thing that's interesting is after Jesus sends his disciples out on their mission trip, um, we, we learn two things. I think we learn two things from this section that we're going through real quick here is that they had a heart for people. They had a heart for people. So people are gathering, they're following Jesus, they're listening to his teaching, and they're hoping maybe for a miracle or two, maybe for their own lives, 
for someone that they love. And finally, it's getting late, and the disciples say, hey, you know, these, these folks are getting hungry. We don't want them to faint on the way. Um, we need to send them out into the surrounding area to find some food. So the good thing is, as a result of ministry, they gained a heart for people. That's, that's a good thing. On the other hand, they probably still lacked the confidence of what God could do through them. And so, you know, they, you know, they go to Jesus and say, hey, you got to send them out. They said, no, 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 you sit them down, we're going to feed them. And so that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus took the, the loaves and fishes, he blessed them, and they were multiplied and distributed. And of course, they had leftovers. It's a great section of scripture to read. But today I want to focus on that next chunk of scripture. And in my Bible says, Peter's confession of Christ, starting in verse 18. So we're going to take a look at that. And it's kind of interesting to note um, that as we go through the book of Luke, you've heard us say over and over again that Luke was written to help Theophilus understand the truth of the gospel. And so Luke has a very specific rationale and reason for writing the book of Luke. And it's for Theophilus to know and to understand that. So there's, there's some of that in here. But then, so who is this Jesus? And that's, that's what Theophilus is asking of Luke. Who is this guy, Jesus? Uh, but before we do that, <clears throat> you know, if, as you look at the previous chapters, set, let's say starting with uh, verse, chapter 7, 8, and now 9, you're finding that people asking the question, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And uh, it just reminded me, there was a movie put out a number of years ago. Some of you remember this. If you're younger, you probably, maybe, maybe you've heard of it, but haven't seen it. It was called, um, it was featured uh, Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And it's become a Western classic called Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Have any of you ever heard of that one or seen it? Okay, what made it partly a classic was this phrase that they kept on using over and over again. If you know it, you can say it with me. Who are these guys? And they say, who are those guys? Who are those guys? These are the guys chasing him because Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, based on real characters, were lovable bandits that they were trying to track down. And so throughout the movie, these, they're being tracked down until there's a big gunfight at the end, which I won't tell you how that concludes. So they go and you find Butch Cassidy and Sundance asking that question. In fact, let's show a little tape of that, what it looks like. I couldn't do that. Could you do that? How can they do that? Who are those guys? They're not going for it. Who are those guys? beginning to get on my nerves who are those guys okay like uh, like those uh, like Butch Cassidy and Sundance asking those questions who are those guys so people were asking the same question around Jesus time who is this guy Jesus and in deference to Pastor R.D. who last week talked about what man is this based on what child is this and last week he talked about how Jesus took the chaos and made calm out of it. And people were wondering, who is this Jesus? Well, we're going to continue that, carry that a little bit on. Who is this guy, Jesus? Because if you go back to chapter 7, you see that they start asking those kinds of questions. 
you know, and it starts off with the disciples. And they're, here they are in the boat, remember? And the seas are being tossed. The wind is blowing. The seas are up. They're getting seasick. They're wondering, you know, are we going to go overboard? Are we going to get sunk? And then Jesus comes out and says, peace, be still. And the disciples look at each other and they said, who is this that the winds and the seas obey him? Who is this guy? And then we find a character uh, and he was a character, John the Baptist. Remember John, John the Baptist? And uh, he knew Jesus. You know, they were cousins. And John's out in the wilderness and dressed in camel's hair and wild beard. And I don't know what he looked like, you know, just wild looking kind of guy, right? And he's yelling, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And so he's going out there. He's, he's preaching and he's baptizing people. He's given the baptism of repentance. And Jesus comes to him, and John sees him off in the distance. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here it was, John the Baptist, his, uh, the cousin of Jesus, and he baptizes Jesus to fulfill scripture. And he knows that Jesus is going to be the Messiah. But in chapter 8 of Luke, he's in prison because he called Herod on something he shouldn't be doing. And so he's in prison, and he's waiting to be beheaded. If you remember that story, he sends his disciples back to Jesus and he asks his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one we should expect or should we expect someone else? And Jesus gives back the reply to his disciples to tell John, hey, tell him everything you've seen and heard. But even here, John the Baptist, who he thinks knows Jesus, does he really know him? And then we find Herod, King Herod, who sought to kill Jesus, um, and who has John imprisoned, he hears about this missionary trip that his disciples just took here in the first part of chapter 9. And in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 9, it said, But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. People are asking, who is Jesus? Who is, who is this guy? And people are guessing, well, he's one of the prophets. Well, he's Elijah. Well, he's John the Baptist. And people are wondering who he is. Many people at best thought he, that Jesus was a rabbi, a good teacher, and maybe a prophet. And on the worst side, they thought, well, maybe Jesus is uh, Satan because he has the power and authority to cast out demons and have authority over them. So you had people who just were struggling to think, who is this guy that we hear so much about? And that's what brings us down then to um, verse 18. Because here are those first two chunks of scripture here. It was action-packed. We've got the missionary journey, you know, the, the trip that, that Jesus sent his disciples on. Then we got the teaching and the feeding of the 5,000. And now it says, as we get to verse 18, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And so we see that the disciples answered correctly. They kind of almost quoted what Herod said in verse 9 of, of who, the, who, who is Jesus. And evidently it's what the crowds were saying as well because they were, you know, the disciples reported this exactly. This is what the crowds are talking about. So Jesus is raising the question, well, who, who do the crowds say that I am? And then Jesus gets very personal. And in verse 20, he asks, but what about you? He asks, 
Who do you say that I am? And of course, impetuous Peter responds, the Christ of God. Kind of interesting that he would ask, who do the crowd say that I am? But you guys have been with me. You guys know me. You guys have hung out with me. We've slept on the, on the road. We've slept in guest houses. We've eaten. We've broken bread together. You've seen me do miracles. I know what the crowds are saying. What do you say? And Peter gets it right. Peter nails it and says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are the one that's been prophesied about. You're the guy. But it's funny, Jesus doesn't quite affirm him in the way that you would think. Here he says in verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, what kind of response is that for getting a right answer? You know, so you get the right answer, you've hung with me, you've got the right answer, and then he goes about saying, don't tell anybody. Why not? I'm hanging with you. And what, what happened is a lot of the disciples were thinking by hanging with Jesus that they were going to be in for some of the power and prestige that would come of being part of ushering in the kingdom of God. But he says here, he says this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. <clears throat> why did Jesus say this? You know, I think for most of us, it's kind of like, I don't get it. Why, why wouldn't he want it revealed to everyone of who he actually is? That he is claiming the title Messiah. That my Father, God and my Father are one. Why didn't he want people to know here? It seems almost like he was discouraging his disciples, doesn't it? And he says, but don't tell them. A lot of people think that he didn't want his disciples to tell people because he didn't want them to foil God's plan right from the beginning, from the beginning of all time, that the Savior would have to suffer first. That the Messiah that they thought they knew, who would be riding in on a white horse with his armies and, and establish his kingdom reign politically and spiritually, that, that you know they thought he was going to be like that. After all, he'd done miracles, he's got gathered a a large following, but no, he says, don't tell anybody about this because here's what's going to happen to me. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised again. Here's the the incident where Jesus is making it very clear to disciples that suffering precedes glory. He's making it very, very clear but they had forgotten. They were thinking about the Messiah, somebody who's going to establish their kingdom reign. We're not going to be subjected to the Romans or any other authority. We're going to have our own deal going, and, and Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be the king. And you know what? That's true. He has established his kingdom. It's still being established. And indeed, at some time, as it says in Philippians, every knee of a bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. That's going to happen. But here Jesus changes the paradigm a little bit and he says, first, the Son of Man must suffer. And he's going to die. A little bit different than what they were used to. But then, so that that he addresses for the crowds. Kind of like he asked the question, who do the crowds say that I am? And now he gets to the point and he asks the question, but who do you say that I am? 
Again, the disciples think, well, I've been hanging with Jesus. I, you know, I've left father and mother. I've, I've, I've seen you do miracles. I've, you know, I'm in. I'm in. And Jesus said, says this in verse 23. Then he said to them all, his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. But Jesus, I thought, you know, I've left father and mother. I put everything else behind. I'm following you. When, when does the property, when does the prosperity, when does the prestige come in following you? And Jesus said, no. Here's what, if, if I'm going to suffer, here's what's going to happen. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. So... What does that look like? What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, you know, sometimes we fast and pray. Sometimes we, um, you know, with New Year's coming up, you might have a resolution, I'm not going to be doing something, and you might deny yourself that way. And it might be an intentional, you know, you want to lose weight or change a habit or something, or it might be intentional spiritually that you want God to speak to. Denying yourself, basically, I think, is making God's priorities my priorities. God's priorities your priorities. Those things that I think I want to do, that I've set my heart on doing, I need to weigh those. I need to put them in front of Christ and I need to ask him to evaluate, Lord, this is what I want to do. What, what would you have me do? Not will, my own will, but your will. That's denying self. And for, for each of us, that might mean something totally different. And then he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? Well, you know, I, I think as 21st century American Christ followers, that's a little bit hard to understand, of taking up our cross and following him. A lot of well-meaning people will say, well, to take up your cross daily, you know, we, we all have our crosses to bear. You know, we, we, ha- we have our, our frailties, we have our limitations, we have our experiences that we have to live and, and kind of grind through, and so we all have our crosses to bear. And we just have to trust Jesus and help that he'll help us. And while that might be true, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. You see, back then, the cross was uh, an identification with guilt, with shame, with death. We sang a song, The Old Rugged Cross, and many of you know the old version of The Old Rugged Cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. That when Jesus is talking to his disciples about the cross, he's not talking about you know, bearing what you have to go through and endure in life. He's saying, embrace my cross. Be willing to be misunderstood, mistreated because of my cross and the shame and guilt that you're going to bear because you're associated with it. It's more than wearing it around the cross on a necklace or on a lapel pin, or even a tattoo. It's identifying with the death, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our own lives. Denying self, 
Making his priorities our priorities. Taking up our cross daily. And that's what it is. It's daily. And we do this day after day, daily, to follow him. Jesus is making it very clear, again, as I mentioned, that suffering precedes glory. Now, if you're here uh, as a guest today, or maybe you're new to Door Creek, I want to make this very, very clear. <clears throat> we, when we talk about Jesus, and we talk about salvation here at Door Creek, salvation is the free gift of God to you and to me. But it was purchased. It was purchased at very great cost by Jesus dying on the cross, shedding his blood for us. That's what John said, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was that sacrificial lamb who took away your sin and my sin. It's free to us to receive, to respond that to that. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want you to misunderstand that. But when he calls us to follow him, to be his disciples, that's where we pay the cost. That's where we pay the price. Not out of earning anything, any more of his love, any more of not out of earning, but out of deep appreciation for what he already did for us. So when the disciples see this, when we see this, we say, how could I not deny myself? How could I not take up my cross and follow the Lord Jesus who gave everything to me? I think that's what it means. Our salvation, praise God, is a free gift from him. Bought at a great price, the shed blood of Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we sing about it. But he calls us, he calls his disciples and he calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him daily. A number of years ago, almost 60 years ago, there was a fellow, 28 years old, with a wife and young daughter who went into the jungles of the Amazon, into Ecuador, in South America. And he, along with four other missionaries, made contact with a primitive tribe called the Alca Indians. And, in fact, the other Indian tribes in that area called them the Alca, and Alca meant savage. They were that brutal. They were that mean. They were that cut off from the other tribes. Other people were afraid to contact them. But over the course of time, they made some contact and felt things were progressing. And so these five missionaries, Jim Elliott being 28 years old, being one of them, made contact. And they told their wives, well, after we make contact, we'll let you know. We'll contact you by radio. They flew in, and they landed along a riverbed, along a sandbar, and a little Cessna. And they had dropped gifts down. They had even given some of the tribesmen a ride in the plane. So this was all a gradual thing. But that call back to the base camp never occurred because they found out that all five of those men were pierced with spears and hacked with machetes and their bodies found downstream along the river. This whole thing of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Christ was something that this guy, Jim Elliott, understood. Because seven years earlier, he had written in his journal this. He is no fool 
to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. A lot of people say, well, Jim forfeited his life, and that was kind of a foolish thing to do. But the fact is, when Jesus calls us as his disciples to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow him, he doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to be comfortable and that everything's going to go well. He's going to rock our world, and he may demand us to do something out of the ordinary, out of the box, because he's asking us to do it. Are you willing to embrace it? Elliot and those four embraced it. And because of their seeds of obedience, a number of their wives went and lived in that Alka village with their kids. A number of those tribespeople came to know Jesus Christ and love him. And several of the men who pierced those bodies with their spears and hacked them with machetes came to know Jesus Christ. It was something almost 60 years ago that rocked the Christian world of the martyrdom of these five missionaries. And yet from their sacrifice, from the seeds of their obedience of denying self and taking up the cross to follow him, God raised up a modern missionary movement. And hundreds of missionaries responded to God's call to the mission field as a result of their obedience. So what does this mean for us? (laughs) What does it mean for you and me? I think... Well, for some of us, maybe some of us sitting right here in this auditorium, particularly for you young people, or maybe some of you folks who are in mid-career, or maybe some of you who are on the, uh, you know, finishing up your career. Maybe God is calling you out of your comfort zone and calling you to do something that you would never think of doing. Because all of a sudden, God's priorities become your priorities. And you say, I'm going to identify with Christ because he identified with me and my sin on the cross. I want to do whatever he calls, whatever he asks me to do. So some of you might be sitting here today and say, well, I I, I sense maybe God is calling me into vocational Christian ministry. Maybe God's calling me to be a missionary or maybe God's calling me to reach the homeless downtown. I don't know what it is, but if God, by his Holy Spirit, is calling you to do it, then do it. For some of us, it's addictions. It's those habits that we have in our lives, even if we come to Christ and we can't kick them. We're having a hard time with it. And we realize it's causing us messed up lives. It's causing us problems, and we just can't seem to quit it. And you might know specifically what it is, and if God, by his Holy Spirit, is pointing out to you, then then do it. And for others of us, it's kind of like planning our lives. Like, I know where I'm going. I know what I'm going to do. I know what degree I'm going to get. I know what jobs I'm going to take. I know what I'm going to apply for, what I'm going to strive for. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit speaks to you. You say, no, 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 no. I got another plan for you. Are you willing to listen? If he's talking to you, if he's speaking, then do it. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Here's the neat thing. Keep on getting this microphone right up in my ears. Here's the neat thing. As I can't tell you 
what it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. If you're here this morning and you're a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You know that. Because he forgave your sin, that backpack of guilt and sin that you were carrying around when you brought them to Christ and put it at the foot of his cross. He freed you and he filled you with a love that you never had before, a peace, a joy that you never had before. The Bible talks about that as being the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christ follower, dwells in you. And you could say, Bob, would you um, hold me accountable to something in my life? And here's what I would do. I'd say, sure, I'd love to do that, if, if that would be helpful for you. And so I might pick out one thing. And then, oh, by the way, while we're at it, let me pick out another thing. And, oh, by the way, let me pick out another thing. Because our tendency as human beings is to dump the truck. By the way, you need to get your act cleaned up on this and this and this. And you know what I love about the Holy Spirit? He takes a laser-guided beam, and he puts it right on the specific area of my heart and life that he needs to touch. But he does it not in a condescending way, not to make me feel guilty. He just points out what it is in my heart and life that he wants to talk to. And he doesn't dump the truck. He just tells me, today, you need to deal with this. But not only does he give us his Holy Spirit, he gives us his word, and he gives us each other to help us deny ourselves, to help us to take up our cross and to follow him. What does it mean for you today? I don't know. The depth, the depth of our sin was paid on the cross by Jesus' blood. But in following him, he asks us to deny ourselves, to take up his cross, and to follow him daily. It's daily. It's daily. But he calls you to deal with it today and not worry about tomorrow. Deal with it today. One of the things that I pray for our folks up at North Campus, and I know as a pastoral staff that we pray for you here, is that you would be Christ followers, that you would be disciples of Christ, who would go anywhere, do anything, and pay any price for the sake of the gospel of Christ. I want to be that. I know that you want to be that. Are we praying and are we obedient to that one thing that the Holy Spirit might be pointing out in our lives that we need to respond to? One of the things I love is a guy who really exemplified that is the Apostle Paul. And many of you know Paul. He wrote a number of the books in the New Testament. And Paul was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was left for dead. Um, All kinds of things. And Paul didn't claim to have this right. And he had to deny himself take up his cross, and follow Jesus daily. And here's what he says in Philippians. Not that I'm saying I have this all together or that I have it made, but I am well on my way reaching out for Christ who so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert all of us, but I've got my eye on the goal where Christ is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running and I'm not turning back. So let's keep focused on that goal. Those of us who want everything that God has for us. And if any of you have something else in mind, something less 
than total commitment. God will clear your blurred vision. You'll see it yet. Now that we're on the right track, let's stay on it. So who is this guy, Jesus? (laughs) He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the King. And what does he want of me? He wants me to join him in the life-thrilling, life-fulfilling, and life-giving adventure of being sold out to him. Why? Because he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Would you pray with me? Lord, these are a little bit of hard words to talk about and to uh, apply to our hearts and lives, and yet we're grateful that uh, you don't force us to do this. We want to give you everything we have because of what you've given to us, everything. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that if you, by your Holy Spirit, have shed light on an area of their lives that they need to deny themselves and take up their cross to identify with you, that you would make that clear to them now. Lord, we would ask that you would make us a people who would go anywhere, do anything, and pay any price for the sake of the gospel of Christ, for the sake of our families, for the sake of our church, and for the sake of our community. And as you would be pleased to do this, we'll make sure that you get the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.